0: But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Claire Hazelton, Pear Carrie Blumvick Bonnie Woolley Michelle Manchak Sarah Crimmins Stevie Ember Brightly Heather McDonald Oliver Baldonado Alice Instone Megzy V. Caroline Lang, Heather Early, Tabitha, Ciara Jimenez, Ariana Rose, Bethwyn Gorman, Rosanna Moore Lockett, Dana Allen, Kaz Marchman, Emily Madeline, and a really big shout out to Meg Barry and her little girls June and Nev. Meg says that her, June, and Nev uh, listened to the podcast every night. And that was such a uh, humbling thing to hear. And June is turning six uh, soon. So I just wanted to say happy birthday, June. I hope you have an awesome, awesome birthday with Nev um, and you have a fantastic summer. And for anyone who doesn't know, All of these names that I just read are brand new patrons on patreon.com, which is a website where you can support creators of the work that you like. So everyone that I just read is now a part of making the Sleepy Podcast by supporting. There's cool perks for joining up. Um, Like this last week, if you donated $5 or more, you were entered into a raffle to win this amazing copy of The Secret Garden that we read on the show last week and I'll be doing the drawing for that tomorrow uh, on our Instagram at sleepy underscore podcast so if you want to support the show um, you can go to patreon.com slash radio and donate even a dollar it goes a really long way and again at five dollars you are entered into all of our book raffles moving forward and you get extra poetry readings every month um, that are exclusive to the $5 Patreon poetry feed. But no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, that's patreon.com slash sleepy radio. And once again, happy birthday, June. And as always, the music that you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski, and the cover art for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. so today is the longest day of the year it is the summer solstice it's always such a bittersweet thing to feel for me especially when i'm in vermont the summers here are absolutely gorgeous and they make the long cold winters really really seem worth living here but by the time you really start loving the summer and getting used to it it's already June 21st and it's already uh, the longest day of the year so I plan on being outside late into the night hopefully till 9 or 9.30 when the sun officially sets and uh, it made me think of a book that I have been wanting to read for a while now which is Around the World in 80 Days By Jules Verne. So tonight, that is the book that we're going to read. Which may be ironic uh, to read this during a time where people aren't really traveling as much. But maybe it will spark your wanderlust. So that when the world does open back up, you go and take that trip that you've always wanted to take. I know I definitely will be. So... Happy solstice everyone and I hope you have a really fantastic night's sleep while I read Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it feel yourself melt into your bed get real comfortable close your eyes and let me read to you Chapter 1, in which Phileas Fogg and Passer Pardell accept each other, the one as master, the other as man. Mr. Phileas Fogg lived in 1872 at Number 7 Savile Row, Burlington Gardens, the house in which Sheridan died in 1814. He was one of the most noticeable members of the Reform Club though he seemed always to avoid attracting attention, an enigmatic personage about whom little was known, except that he was a polished man of the world. People said that he resembled Byron, at least his head was Byronic, but he was a bearded, tranquil Byron who might live on a thousand years without growing old. Certainly an Englishman, It was more doubtful whether Phileas Fogg was a Londoner. He was never seen on change, nor at the bank, nor in the counting rooms of the city. No ships ever came into London docks of which he was the owner. He had no public employment. He had never been entered at any of the inns, of court, Either at the Temple, or Lincoln's Inn, or Gray's Inn nor had his voice ever resounded in the court of Chancery, or in the Exchequer, or the Queen's Bench, or the Ecclesiastical Courts. He certainly was not a manufacturer, nor was he a merchant or a gentleman farmer. His name was strange to the scientific and learned societies, and he never was known to take part in the sage deliberations of the royal institution or the London Institution, the Artisans' Association, or the Institution of Arts and Sciences. He belonged, in fact, to none of the numerous societies which swarm in the English capital, from the harmonic to that of the entomologist, founded mainly for the purpose of abolishing pernicious insects. Phileas Fogg was a member of the Reform. And that was all. The way in which he got admission to this exclusive club was simple enough. He was recommended by the bearings, with whom he had an open credit. His checks were regularly paid at sight from his account current, which was always flush. Was Phileas Fogg rich? Undoubtedly. But those who knew him best could not imagine. How he made his fortune, and Mr. Fogg was the last person to whom to apply for this information. He was not lavish, nor on the contrary, avaricious. For whenever he knew that money was needed for a noble, useful, or benevolent purpose, he supplied it quietly, and sometimes anonymously. He was, in short, the least communicative of men. He talked very little, and seemed all the more mysterious for his taciturn manner. His daily habits were quite open to observation, but whatever he did was so exactly the same thing that he had always done before, that the wits of the curious were fairly puzzled. Had he traveled? It was likely, for no one seemed to know, the world more familiarly. There was no spot so secluded that he did not appear to have an intimate acquaintance with it. He often corrected with a few clear words the thousand conjectures advanced by members of the club as to lost and unheard of travelers pointing out the true probabilities and seeming as if gifted with a sort of second sight. So often did events justify his predictions. He must have traveled everywhere, at least in spirit. It was at least certain that Phileas Fogg had not absented himself from London for many years. Those who were honored by a better acquaintance with him than the rest declared that nobody could pretend to have ever seen him anywhere else. His sole pastimes were reading the papers and playing whist. He often won at this game, which as a silent one, harmonized with his nature. But his winnings never went into his purse, being reserved as a fun for his charities. Mr. Fogg played, not to win, but for the sake of playing. The game was in his eyes a contest, a struggle with a difficulty, yet a motionless, unwearying struggle, congenial to his tastes. Phileas Fogg was not known to have either wife or children, which may happen to the most honest people, either relatives or near friends, which is certainly more unusual. He lived alone in his house in Savile Row, whither none penetrated. A single domestic sufficed to serve him. He breakfasted and dined at the club, had hours mathematically fixed in the same room at the same table never taking his meals with other members much less bringing a guest with him and went home at exactly midnight only to retire at once to bed he never used the cozy chambers which the reform provides for its favored members he passed 10 hours out of 24 in Savile Row either in sleeping or making his toilet. When he chose to take a walk, it was with a regular step in the entrance hall with its mosaic flooring or in the circular gallery with its dome supported by twenty red porphyry ionic columns and illumined by blue painted windows. When he breakfasted or dined all the resources of the club, its kitchens and pantries, its Buttery and dairy, aided to crowd his table with their most succulent stores. He was served by the gravest waiters, in dress coats and shoes with swan skin soles, who proffered the viands in special porcelain and on the finest linen. Club decanters of a lost mold contained his sherry, his port, and his cinnamon spice claret while his beverages were refreshingly cooled with ice, brought at great cost from the American lakes. If to live in this style is to be eccentric, it must be confessed that there is something good in eccentricity. The mansion in Saville Row, though not sumptuous, was exceedingly comfortable. The habits of its occupant were such as to demand but little from the sole domestic but Phileas Fogg required him to be almost superhumanly prompt and regular. On this very 2nd of October, he had dismissed James Forster, because that luckless youth had brought him shaving water at 84 degrees Fahrenheit instead of 86, and he was awaiting his successor, who was due at the house between 11 and half-past. Phileas Fogg was seated squarely in his armchair, his feet closed together like those of a grenadier on a parade, his hands resting on his knees, his body straight, his head erect. He was steadily watching a complicated clock, which indicated the hours, the minutes, the seconds, the days, the months, and the years. At exactly half past eleven, Mr. Fogg would, according to his daily habit, quit Savile Row and repair to reform. A rap at this moment sounded on the door of the cozy apartment where Phileas Fogg was seated and James Forster, the dismissed servant, appeared. A new servant, said he. A young man of thirty advanced and bowed. You are a Frenchman, I believe, asked Phileas Fogg, and your name is Jean? Jean, if Monsieur pleases, replied the newcomer. Jean Passerpardeau, a surname which has clung to me because I have a natural aptness for going out of one business into another. I believe I am honest, Monsieur, but to be outspoken, I have had several trades, i have been an itinerant singer, a circus rider, when I used to ball like leotard and dance on a rope like Blondin. Then I got to be a professor of gymnastics, so as to make better use of my talents, and then I was a sergeant fireman at Paris and assisted at many a big fire. But I quitted France five years ago, and wishing to taste the sweets of domestic life, "'took service as a valet here in England. "'Finding myself out of place "'and hearing that Monsieur Phileas Fogg "'was the most exact and settled gentleman "'in the United Kingdom, "'I have come to Monsieur "'in the hope of living with him "'a tranquil life "'and forgetting even the name of Passepartout. Passepartout suits me,' responded Mr. Fogg. You are well recommended to me. I hear a good report on you. You know my conditions? Yes, monsieur. Good. What time is it? Twenty-two minutes after eleven, returned Passepartout, drawing an enormous silver watch from the depths of his pocket. You are too slow, said Mr. Fogg. Pardon me, monsieur. It is impossible. You are four minutes too slow. No matter. It's enough to mention the error. Now, from this moment, 29 minutes after 11 a.m. this Wednesday, 2nd October, you are in my service. Phileas Fogg got up, took his hat in his left hand, put it on his head with an automatic motion, and went off without a word. Passepartout heard the street door shut once. It was his new master going out. He heard it shut again. It was his predecessor, James Forster, departing in his turn. Passepartout remained alone in the house in Savile Row. Chapter 2 In which Passepartout is convinced that he, at last, found his idea. Faith, muttered Passepartout, somewhat flurried. I have seen people at Madame Tussauds as lively as my new master. Madame Tussauds' people, let it be said, are of wax and are much visited in London. Speech is all that is wanting to make them human. During his brief interview with Mr. Fogg, Passepartout had been carefully observing him. He appeared to be a man about forty years of age, with fine, handsome features, and a tall, well-shaped figure. His hair and whiskers were light, his forehead compact and unwrinkled, his face rather pale, his teeth magnificent. His countenance possessed in the highest degree what physiognomists call repose in action a quality of those who act rather than talk calm and phlegmatic with a clear eye Mr. Fogg seemed a perfect type of that English composure which Angelica Kaufman has so skillfully represented on canvas seen in the various phases of his daily life he gave the idea of being perfectly well balanced as exactly regulated as a Leroy chronometer. Phileas Fogg was, indeed, exactitude personified, and this was betrayed even in the expression of his very hands and feet, for in men, as well as animals, the limbs themselves are expressive of the passions. He was so exact that he was never in a hurry, was always ready and was economical alike of his steps and motions. He never took one step too many and always went to his destination by the shortest cut. He made no superfluous gestures and was never seen to be moved or agitated. He was the most deliberate person in the world. yet always reached his destination at the exact moment. He lived alone, and, so to speak, outside of every social relation, and as he knew that in this world account must be taken a friction, and that friction retards, he never rubbed against anybody. As for Passeparteau, he was a true Parisian of Paris. Since he had abandoned his own country for England, taking service as a valet, He had in vain searched for a master after his own heart. Passaporto was by no means one of those pert dunces depicted by Moliere with a bold glaze and a nose held high in the air. He was an honest fellow, with a pleasant face, lips a trifle protruding, soft-mannered and serviceable, with a good round head such as one likes to see on the shoulders of a friend. His eyes were blue, his complexion rubicund, his figure almost portly and well-built, his body muscular, and his physical powers fully developed by the exercises of his younger days. His brown hair was somewhat tumbled, for, while the ancient sculptors are said to have known eighteen methods of arranging Minerva's tresses, Passaporto was familiar with but one dressing his own. Three strokes of a large tooth comb completed his toilet. It would be rash to predict how Pasapatoa's lively nature would agree with Mr. Fogg. It was impossible to tell whether the new servant would turn out as absolutely methodical as his master required. Experience alone could solve the question. Passepartout had been a sort of vagrant in his early years, and now yearned for repose. But so far he had failed to find it, though he had already served in ten English houses. But he could not take root in any of these. With chagrin, he found his masters invariably whimsical and irregular, constantly running about the country or on the lookout for adventure. His last master Young Lord Longferry, member of Parliament, after passing his nights in the Haymarket taverns, was too often brought home in the morning on policemen's shoulders. Passepartout, desirous of respecting the gentleman whom he served, ventured a mild remonstrance of such conduct, which, being ill-received, he took his leave. Hearing that Mr. Phileas Fogg was looking for a servant, and that his life was one of unbroken regularity, that he neither traveled nor stayed from home overnight. He felt sure that this would be the place he was after. He presented himself and was accepted, as has been seen. At half-past eleven, then, Passepartout found himself alone in the house in Savile Row. He begun its inspection without delay, scouring it from cellar to garret so clean well arranged solemn a mansion pleased him it seemed to him like a snail show lighted and warmed by gas which sufficed for both of these purposes when passaporto reached the second story he recognized at once the room which he was to inhabit and he was well satisfied with it Electric bells and speaking tubes afforded communication with the lower stories, while on the mantel stood an electric clock, precisely like that in Mr. Fogg's bedchamber, both beating the same second at the same instant. That's good. That'll do, said Passepartout to himself. He suddenly observed. Hung over the clock a card which, upon inspection, proved to be a program of the daily routine of the house. It comprised all that was required of the servant, from eight in the morning, exactly at which the hour, Phileas Fogg rose till half-past eleven, when he left the house for the reform club. All the details of service, the tea and toast at twenty-three minutes past eight, the shaving water at 37 minutes past 9, and the toilet at 20 minutes before 10. Everything was regulated and foreseen that was to be done from half-past 11 a.m. till midnight, the hour at which the methodical gentleman retired. Mr. Fogg's wardrobe was amply supplied in the best taste. Each pair of trousers, coat, and vest bore a number, indicating the time of year and season at which they were in turn to be laid out for wearing, and the same system was applied to the master's shoes. In short, the house in Saville Row, which must have been a very temple of disorder and unrest under the illustrious but dissipated Sheridan, was coziness, comfort, and method idealized. There was no study Nor were there books, which would have been quite useless to Mr. Fogg. For at the Reform, two libraries, one of the general literature and the other of law and politics, were at his service. A moderate sized safe stood in his bedroom, constructed so as to defy fire as well as burglars, but Passepartout found neither arms nor hunting weapons anywhere. Everything betrayed the most tranquil. And peaceable habits. Having scrutinized the house from top to bottom, he rubbed his hands. A broad smile overspread his features, and he said joyfully, This is just what I wanted. Ah, we shall get on together, Mr. Fogg and I. What a domestic and regular gentleman. A real machine. Well, I don't mind serving a machine. Chapter 3. In which a conversation takes place which seems likely to cost Phileas Fogg dear. Phileas Fogg, having shut the door of his house at half past eleven and having put his right foot before his left five hundred and seventy-five times and his left foot before his right five hundred and seventy-six times, reached the reform club an imposing edifice in Pall Mall, which could not have cost less than three millions. He repaired at once to the dining room, the nine windows of which open upon a tasteful garden, where the trees were already gilded with an autumn coloring, and took his place at the habitual table, the cover of which had already been laid for him. His breakfast consisted of a side dish, a broiled fish with redding sauce, a scarlet slice of roast beef garnished with mushrooms, a rhubarb and gooseberry tart, and a morsel of Cheshire cheese, the whole being washed down with several cups of tea for which the reform was famous. He rose at thirteen minutes to one and directed his steps towards the large hall, a sumptuous apartment adorned with lavishly framed paintings. A flunky handed him an uncut times, which he proceeded to cut with a skill which betrayed familiarity with this delicate operation. The perusal of this paper absorbed Phileas Fogg until a quarter before four, whilst the standard, his next task, occupied him till the dinner hour. Dinner passed as breakfast had done, and mister Fogg reappeared in the reading room and sat down to the Paul Mall at twenty minutes before six. Half an hour later, several members of their form came in and drew up to the fireplace, where a coal fire was steadily burning. They were mister Fogg's usual partners at Whist. Andrew Stewart, an engineer. John Sullivan and Samuel Fallington, bankers, Thomas Flanagan, a brewer, and Gothier Rao, one of the directors of the Bank of England, all rich and highly respectable personages, even in a club which comprises the princes of English trade and finance. Well, Rao, said Thomas Flanagan, what about that robbery? Oh, replied Stewart The bank will lose the money On the contrary, broke in Ralph I hope we may put our hands on the robber Skillful detectives have been sent to all principal ports of America and the continent And he'll be a clever fellow if he slips through their fingers But have you got the robber's description? Asked Stewart In the first place, he is no robber at all Returned Ralph positively. What? A fellow who makes off with fifty five thousand pounds? No robber? No. Perhaps he's a manufacturer, then. The Daily Telegraph says that he is a gentleman. It was Phileas Fogg, whose head now emerged from behind the newspapers, who made his remark. He bowed to his friends and entered into the conversation. The affair which formed its subject, and which was town talk, had occurred three days before at the Bank of England. A package of banknotes to the value of fifty-five thousand pounds had been taken from the principal cashier's table, that functionary being at the moment engaged in registering the receipt of three shillings and sixpence. Of course, he could not have had his eyes everywhere. Let it be observed that the Bank of England reposes a touching confidence in the honesty of the public. There are neither guards nor gratings to protect its treasures. Gold, silver, banknotes are freely exposed at the mercy of the first comer. A keen observer of English customs relates that Being in one of the rooms of the bank one day, he had the curiosity to examine a gold ingot weighing some seven or eight pounds. He took it up, scrutinized it, passed it to his neighbor, he to the next man, and so on until the ingot, going from hand to hand, was transferred to the end of a dark entry. Nor did it return to its place for half an hour. Meanwhile, the cashier had not so much raised his head. But in the present instance, things had not gone so smoothly. The package of notes not being found when five o'clock sounded from the ponderous clock in the drawing office. The amount was passed to the account of profit and loss. As soon as the robbery was discovered, pick detectives hastened off to Liverpool Glasgow, Havre, Suez, Brindisi, New York, and other ports inspired by the proffered reward of £2,000 and 5% on the sum that might be recovered. Detectives were also charged with narrowly watching those who arrived at or left London by rail and a judicial examination was at once entered upon. There were real grounds for supposing As the Daily Telegraph said, the thief did not belong to a professional band. On the day of the robbery, a well-dressed gentleman of polished manners with a well-to-do air had been observing going to and fro in the paying room where the crime was committed. A description of him was easily procured and sent to the detectives and some hopeful spirits of whom Ralph was one did not despair of this apprehension. The papers and clubs were full of the affair, and everywhere people were discussing the probabilities of a successful pursuit, and the Reform Club was especially agitated, several of its members being bank officials. Ralph would not concede that the work of the detectives was likely to be in vain, for he thought that the prize offered would greatly stimulate their zeal and activity. But Stuart was far from sharing this confidence, and as they placed themselves at the whist table, they continued to argue the matter. Stuart and Flanagan played together, while Phileas Fogg had Fallington for his partner. As the game proceeded, the conversation ceased excepting between the rubbers when it revived again. I maintain, said Stewart that the chances are in favor of the thief who must be a shrewd fellow. Well, but where can he fly to? asked Ralph. No country is safe for him. Bishaw. Where could he go then? Oh, I don't know that. The world is big enough. It was once, said Phileas Fogg in a low tone. Cut, sir, he added, handing the cards to Thomas Flanagan. The discussion fell during the rubber, after which Stewart took up its thread. What do you mean by once? Has the world grown smaller? Certainly, returned Rao. I agree with Mr. Fogg. The world has grown smaller, since a man can now go round it ten times more quickly than a hundred years ago, and that is why the search for this thief will be more than likely to succeed, and also why the thief can get away more easily. Be so good as to play, Mr. Stewart, said Phileas Fogg. But the incredulous Stewart was not convinced, and when the hand was finished, said eagerly, you have a strange way, Raoul, of proving that the world has grown smaller. So because you can go round it in three months, in eighty days, interrupted Phileas Fogg. That is true, gentlemen, added John Sullivan. Only eighty days, now that the section between Rothel and Alabama on the Great Indian Peninsula Railway has been opened. Here is the estimate made by the Daily Telegraph. From London to Suez, Via Monsinas and Brindisi by rail and steamboats seven days. From Suez to Bombay by steamer thirteen. From Bombay to Calcutta by rail three. From Calcutta to Hong Kong by steamer thirteen. From Hong Kong to Yokohama, Japan by steamer six. From Yokohama to San Francisco by steamer, 22. From San Francisco to New York by rail, 7. From New York to London by steamer and rail, 9. Total, 80 days. Yes, in 80 days, exclaimed Stuart, who was in his excitement, made a false deal. But that doesn't take into account bad weather Contrary winds, shipwrecks, railway accidents, and so on. All included, returned Phileas Fogg, continuing to play despite the discussion. But suppose the Hindus and Indians pull up the rails, replied Stuart. Suppose they stop the trains, pillage the luggage vans, and scalp the passengers. All included, calmly retorted Fogg adding, as he threw down the cards, two trumps. Stewart, whose turn it was to deal, gathered them up and went on. You are right, theoretically, Mr. Fogg, but practically, practically also, Mr. Stewart. I'd like to see you do it in 80 days. It depends on you. Shall we go? Heaven preserve me. But I would wager four thousand pounds as such a journey, made under these conditions, is impossible. Quite possible, on the contrary, returned Mr. Fogg. Well, make it then. The journey around the world in eighty days? Yes. I should like nothing better. When? At once. Only I warn you that I shall do it at your expense. It's absurd, cried Stuart, who was beginning to be annoyed at the persistency of his friend. Come, let's go on with the game. Deal over again then, said Phileas Fogg. There's a false deal. Stuart took up the pack with a feverish hand, then suddenly put them down again. Well, Mr. Fogg, said he, it shall be so. I will wager the four thousand on it. Calm yourself, my dear Stewart, said Valentin. It's only a joke. When I say I'll wager, returned Stewart, I mean it. All right, said Mr. Fogg. And turning to the others, he continued, I have a deposit of twenty thousand at Barings, which I will willingly risk upon it. Twenty thousand pounds, cried Sullivan. Twenty thousand pounds which you would lose by a single accidental delay. The unforeseen does not exist, quietly replied Phileas Fogg. But Mr. Fogg, eighty days are only the estimate of the least possible time in which the journey can be made. A well-used minimum suffices for everything. But in order not to exceed it, You must jump mathematically from the trains upon the steamers and from the steamers upon the trains again. I will jump mathematically. You are joking. A true Englishman doesn't joke when he is talking about so serious a thing as a wager, replied Phineas Fogg solemnly. I will bet £20,000 against anyone who wishes that I will make the tour of the world. In eighty days or less, in nineteen hundred and twenty hours or a hundred and fifteen thousand two hundred minutes, do you accept? We accept, replied Monsieur Stewart, Valentin, Sullivan, Flanagan, and Rao after consulting each other. Good, said Mr. Fogg. The train leaves for Dover at a quarter before nine. I will take it. This very evening, asked Stuart. This very evening, returned Phileas Fogg. He took out and consulted a pocket almanac and added, As today is Wednesday the 2nd of October, I shall be due in London in this very room of the Reform Club on Saturday, the 21st of December at a quarter before 9 p.m. or else the 20,000 pounds Now deposited in my name at Barings, will belong to you, in fact and in right, gentlemen. Here is a cheque for the amount. A memorandum of the wager was at once drawn up and signed by the six parties, during which Phileas Fogg preserved a stoical composure. He certainly did not bet to win, and had only staked the twenty thousand pounds, half of his fortune because he foresaw that he might have to expend the other half to carry out this difficult, not to say unattainable, project. As for his antagonists, they seemed much agitated, not so much by the value of their stake as because they had some scruples about betting under conditions so difficult to their friend. The clock struck seven and the party offered to suspend the game so that Mr. Fogg might make his preparations for departure. I am quite ready now, was his tranquil response. Diamonds are trumps. Be so good as to play, gentlemen. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.